Good morning again. So it's been a while, but I know I'm still supposed to have you out before the Bengals game, right? Just joking. Uh, so I'm going to stay away from yesterday for all of our sakes, because uh, it wasn't good for me either. But to start with, there was a young family having Thanksgiving, and it was uh, at home, and just the three of them, the mom, the dad, and the little boy, but they really wanted to go out, so, so they dressed up, they sat down, they had the table all made up, they had a centerpiece and everything. And so while they're eating, you know, the little boy, he's eating, and he kind of looks up and, and says to his dad, Dad, when people eat worms, do they like it? And the dad's like, son, this isn't the time for stuff like that. We're having a nice dinner. And, you know, he kind of put it aside, and so the boy went back to eating. And then afterwards, the dad brought him up and, you know, said, hey, you know, you understand that we don't talk like that at the dinner table, but why were you asking that then? He's like, well... I just figured that, that people must like them because there was one in your stuffing you were eating. <laughs> so, <laughs> we are wrapping up the Grateful series. And throughout this series, Andy has talked about being grateful for our past, for our present, for our future. Which leaves us today with eternity. With, with heaven, with the promise of a future, with the promise of a hope, with the promise of a home. And to get there, for me, I love to look at the book of Revelation. And I love how it shows the, the finality of God's plan. And I get that it can be scary and confusing sometimes, but it's such a hopeful book and such a, a hopeful scripture of everything that is going to happen and, and why and all of these things that God put together for us. So as we prepare for the holidays, as we live through Thanksgiving weekend, as we look to the future, to eternity, I want to go to Revelation chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud, with a rainbow over his head. His face shone like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. And in his hand was a small scroll that had been opened. He stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a great shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the seven thunders answered. When the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, keep secret what the seven thunders said and do not write it down. So if you're familiar with Revelation 9, you know that it ends off with the sounding of the sixth trumpet. And with each trumpet, there was something pretty monumental that happens, mostly kind of scary and negative and things that are really hard to deal with. But after the sixth trumpet, there's almost this interlude in Revelation 10. And it's not a dramatic interlude like something Shakespeare would do, but it's for mercy. And it reminds us of God's mercy, of the hope that comes with this plan, of the fact that the entire end times is designed with mercy in mind for hope, for love. And we can look at them and be like, what are you talking about? Like, look at all these things that happen, all of these people that, that die, all of these plagues and all of these, these awful things that are going on. How in the world can that be mercy? Well, because very simply put, God could just snap his fingers and things are over. But if that's the case, then there's no other chance. There's no chance for people. There's no hope for people. It, it just ends. But because he is love, because he has a plan, because he has a purpose... He allows it to take longer. He allows it to go more. He allows there to be a process 
so that people have more opportunities, so people can have hope, so people have a chance to choose him, so we have a chance to show him to others. And in this scripture, the part that I've read so far, it talks about the angel, and perhaps it's Gabriel because it refers to him as the messenger, and he brought a pretty important message at one point. Maybe it's Michael. It doesn't really matter who the angel is. What matters is, as he comes out of the clouds, John, who wrote this and is speaking, sees a rainbow over his head. Now, obviously, that is indicative of God's plan, and it shows that that he still promises to do things for our good and not to end the world in a certain way, but to give us hope and a chance. But it's also scientific. Because if you look through the clouds at an angel coming down, you're going to see a rainbow because of the water. So it reminds us, not just that God has a plan, not just that he's in control, but that he works through science too. And sometimes we kind of separate the two, but God created science for us and he gave us this chance to live in a world that kind of makes sense sometimes. With time and with physics and with all of these things that you don't necessarily like to study, but that exist for our good. And so it reminds us that God is in control of everything. There is nothing beyond his control, nothing that he doesn't understand, nothing that he doesn't know. And as the angel comes down, uh, we'll talk about the small scroll or the little book, however you want to refer to it later. And the short answer for that is, just like the other scrolls, we don't know fully what is in them. There's no explanation for this one at all after this. But I will talk about it later, but it's probably something to do with God's plan or the time or, or specifically revelation. But as the angel lands... He has a foot on water and a foot on land, which again shows that God has mastery of both, of everything in the world. There is nothing beyond his control. And I get that we can look at the world and see chaos and see evil and see all of these things and be like, how in the world can this happen? God still is in control. And he still has a plan, and he still is perfect. And and the angel speaks with the thunderous voice of God. It refers to the seven thunders. And that goes back to Psalm 29, where uh, it speaks of the thunderous voice of God. And seven times, it refers to the voice of the Lord in that psalm. And so basically, this is telling us the angel is speaking with God's authority. And then God's voice comes out over everything. And, And now the big one. Why can't we know what he said? Why can't we know what God said there? Why? Why did did he say, don't write this down, John? And I can tell you this, if you read through commentaries and look up things, like it drives commentators and theologians crazy. Because they want so badly to have answers. We want so badly to have answers. Now, thankfully, I'm neither of those things. Maybe crazy, but not commentator or theologian. Nobody laughed, which means you believe it, and that's fine. (laughs) That is okay. If I were to bring in a film crew, like a TV reporting crew, and they were to ask everybody here as you walk out, for one, some of you would take a different exit, but if they were to say, why can't we know when revelation happens? Why can't we know God's plan? I think all of us, for the most part, would kind of have the pat church answer of, well, we're not supposed to know. God has a plan, and it's supposed to be secret, because if we knew, then we'd wait, or whatever we'd think about. Yet, over and over again, 
We try to figure it out. People try to figure it out. Uh, Religions have been built over predictions of when the end times are going to happen. The disciples believed they were living in the end times, and so they wanted to figure out exactly when it is. Paul's generation and beyond our generation, we always look to things and say, well, this fits and this fits, and so maybe we're in the end times. And, And I don't know if it's because we just want to know so that we're ready, or we just want to know so other people are ready, or if there's some kind of feeling of honor of being in the last generation. But regardless, we have to trust that there is a reason, and and it's for us. We should be grateful for not knowing. Now, my feeling on what the funders say is that whatever it is, it points exactly to when it's going to happen. Maybe it refers to a specific person. Maybe it talks about Joe Burrow getting healthy finally. Maybe it talks about something else in, in that's going on in the world at that point, or some technology, or something, or to a specific person. But I believe that it would point to it exactly. And again, for us not knowing, we should be grateful. Not just for eternity, but for the plan, for not knowing. And and you may be like, but why? So I have a quote, and it's been a while since I've done this, and so I assumed that everybody was really missing C.S. Lewis. And so I'm going to bring three C.S. Lewis quotes to you today. And the first one is, we ought to give thanks for all fortune. If it is good, because it is good. If bad, because it works in us. Patience, humility, and the contempt of this world and the hope of our eternal country. It's really hard to be thankful for bad things. Now, CS and God aren't saying, when something bad happens to you, be really happy. Because I can tell you that that in my life, when I struggle with things, when things are bad, when things are hard, when it's difficult, I'm not joyful about that. But we can be thankful for the chance to learn, for the chance to grow, for the, the fact that as long as there is life, there is hope, for the fact that we are going towards something more. That all of the pains of the earth will prepare us to help others, to understand others, to understand him, to show him to more people. Now, again, we ask, why can't we just know? Because I'd still be pretty good about it. You know, I'd still go to church and I'd still give and I'd do all of these things. Uh, I have a niece named Beatrice. It's probably a surprise to most of you. She is at the stage and has been for a while now of why? And the other day we were at the Children's Museum and there's a meteorite and, and uh, they had it displayed and talked about it. And I'm like, hey, this is a meteorite. It came from space. And she's like, why? And I'm like, well, uh, put on my science hat. Because it was close to the atmosphere and the meteor was and it kind of fell through and it got pulled in. Why? Well, you know how a magnet works? No. Well, you know the atmosphere. Why? And like, just why and why? And it kept going and going. And I got less and less sciencey as we went, but it still worked. But the point is, we still want to know why. Even though we understand that it's for our good, it's why. And so let's look at that. Let's look at that for a second. Why we should be grateful for not knowing. Why we should be grateful for for not having this secret knowledge. Let's say that it's a long way off. I'm struggling to think of what year it is right now, but that's okay. Let's say that it's in the year 2352. 
And we know for a fact this is when the end times start. Well, for the most part, none of us will be here. Maybe a couple of us will still be going. But 2352 is a long way off. So think about from James and John all the way to us. That's a really long way off. So, yeah, we'd still go to church and we'd still care. But there's not really any urgency at that point. Our lives are still short, but, but it's like, man, it's a long way off. Like, this is for another generation to worry about. And so maybe the passion isn't there. Maybe some of the hope is gone. Maybe we're a little lazier with it. So let's flip it. Let's say we find out it's next Tuesday at 3 p.m. A little scary. But let's say we know that. Well, yeah, we're going to be very urgent at that point. But we'd probably also be much more impatient with other people. And we think, well, I'd be more loving, but really we'd probably be a little judgier and a little harsher and a little more direct with, you have to listen to me. And it'd be a very difficult thing to live. And we would just be waiting till that moment. Either way, if I were to ask everyone here, if there was ever a point in your life when you were young, not if there was ever a point in your life when you were young, because we all were. But when you were young, if there was ever a point in your life where your parents were gone for the day or the weekend or something, and you had to know exactly when they came back so you could clean up things or, or you could fix something that you'd broken or something. And if I were to ask everybody to raise their hand that's been through that, I would be knocked down with the force of the wind from your hands. And so as much as we say, I'd still keep going, human nature is that if we knew the date, we'd still kind of wait until right before. And so we have to be thankful. We must be thankful to not know, to always have that hope, to always have that chance, to always have that desire for eternity, to have that desire to, to see his plan play out. And again, it's hard to be thankful for bad things, for job losses, for hurts, for, for losing people, for problems that we face, for the struggles that we face, for the world. But we know that one day we'll be in perfection. We will be in eternity. We will be in heaven. And so by not knowing, by having short lives, by having what we have, by dealing with the good, the bad, the ugly, with everything that we face, we get to carry that hope for eternity all along, not just at one point. We get to carry it throughout our entire lives. And we get to share it throughout our entire lives. Going back to the scripture, verse 5. Then the angel I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand toward heaven. He swore an oath, oath, oath in the name of the one who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and everything in them, the earth and everything in it, and the sea and everything in it. He said, there will be no more delay. When the seventh angel blows his trumpet, God's mysterious plan will be, be fulfilled it will happen just as he announced it to the servants and the prophets. Again, I say mercy. God's mercy is why we don't know when this happens. And it's God's mercy that it happens in this way at all. It's why the end times are in stages and not all at once. Because it gives people a chance and it gives people hope. And you may be thinking, why in the world can't they see it before? We're stubborn. But it gives us a chance and it gives people more of a chance. And you may be asking, well, then why end it at all? 
Why not just keep it with earth and heaven and, and, and hell and all of these things as they are? And why end life like this? Well, we go back to science. And I have a science teacher somewhere over here, so I'm going to be careful. But at some point in the far future, the sun, which is a star, is going to blow up into uh, a red nova, a red star, a red something, I forget. It's going to get really big. And then it's going to shrink into a white dwarf. And it's going to basically cancel out life on Earth. Or, occasionally you'll hear about an asteroid or a meteor or a comet or something coming pretty close to the Earth, giving us kind of a haircut. And so, statistically speaking, the longer life goes, the longer time goes, eventually something's going to hit. God knows all of that. He knows that there is always a chance for something like that to happen. So he has a plan to end things before that so we don't have to live by random chance. So that we can live by his plan so that things end on his terms. Because those are good terms. And again, it gives us a chance and it gives us hope because everything comes to an end. From the beginning of time, everything comes to an end. And time is a human concept. In heaven, there's no time. In heaven, there's no physics. I cannot explain that. Just like I can't explain, well, in the beginning, God created everything, but he also existed before in the beginning. We just can't wrap our heads around these things. But God can. And he planned it out perfectly for us. God's plan covers for everything, for every chance, for every possibility. And it remains a mystery. And when they talk about it being a mystery, it's not in the way we use it. It's not an Agatha Christie or a Sherlock Holmes story. Although those are pretty good. It's used in the Bible more like the purpose of the church is a mystery of God's plan or the living presence of Jesus and the believer, the gospel, the trinity, all of these things are a mystery. It's something that can never be fully known but still can be held, shared, loved because God is more than everything. And God is able to cover for everything. God loves everyone and God is everywhere. And all of that is what we can know. Whether we understand it or not, we can know it. But the end of things can still be scary. Whether it's the end of time or the end of our life or, or just the end of something, it can be scary. And even as Christians, as bad as the world can be, as much trouble as there can be, as much evil as you can see, there's still a lot of good. And we still have families, and, and we still have football. We're done with college, but we've got college basketball and still the NFL. We still have things that we like. We have Thanksgiving. We have Christmas. We have a chance to bring me lots of presents. Apparently not, but we have something. We have things that are good, and so it can be hard. It can be hard to let that go. And it can be hard to understand what's next. In confirmation, we had a question, and I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit. But the person asked, how will it feel in eternity? How is it going to work without time? How is this going to happen where there's just never an end? Like it just keeps going. And we don't have a full answer to that. 
But I have another quote that helps us know what's important. There are far, far better things ahead than any we leave behind. If your life has been a struggle, and it's been a lot of difficulties and a lot of losses and a lot of hurts and a lot of pain, then it can be hard to imagine an eternity where that's gone. It can be hard to imagine an eternity where you don't have to work paycheck to paycheck or hour to hour, where where you don't have to worry about so many things, where you don't have to be responsible for so many things, where you don't have to feel so unloved. It can be hard to imagine an eternity of that. Or flip it if your life's been pretty good. If you've had a pretty good life, a comfortable life, where you've mostly had everything you needed, and you felt love and you've had good things and it's gone pretty well, it can be hard to imagine something better than that. And we can talk and dream and imagine heaven and eternity and all of these things, but the truth of the matter is, it's better than anything we can think of. Because Jesus said so. And he said, this is going to be perfect, guys. And it's going to be perfect for you. And you're going to feel loved forever. And you're going to feel complete for the first time ever. You're not going to have the decay of death hanging over your head. You're not going to have time to worry about. You're going to feel whole. And you're going to feel loved. And you're going to be able to see those you've lost. And you're going to be surrounded by God's presence. And we can look back to the Garden of Eden and we can see a glimpse of perfection that we messed up. Well, heaven is even better than that, and we can't mess it up this time. Imagine living without that hope. Maybe it makes the short term a little nicer, and the highs a little higher, and the lows a little lower. But as you near the end of that, and you're thinking it just ends, like, how hopeless, how awful. We should be grateful that we don't have to worry about that. We are grateful because we have eternity waiting for us, and it's better than anything we can imagine. And in that gratefulness, we must show it to everyone else on the way. Not to be right. Not to be part of the last generation. Not to to, to shame people. But to help them to see there's something so much more than you can imagine. And this is what it looks like. This is a glimpse of it. This is eternity. To go back to the scripture as we wrap it up. Then the voice from heaven spoke to me again. Go and take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I took him uh, to give, and I told him to give me the small scroll. Yes, take it and eat it, he said. It will be sweet as honey in your mouth, but it will turn sour in your stomach. So I took the small scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it turned sour in my stomach. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So this is some of the stuff in Revelation that makes people be iffy. It's like, what are you talking about? Why do you eat a book? All throughout school, people have told me to devour knowledge, and I never knew this is what they meant. (laughs) The truth is, this is probably not literal. 
In fact, if we go back to Ezekiel 3, there was a similar command of eating the word and feeling the sweetness and the bitterness. And so we may think, wait, how could possibly the Bible be both? Well, probably what John does here, rather than eat the scroll, is he he learns it and he brings it in and he feels it just like we do with the gospel, just like we do with the Bible, just like we do with God's word. And he feels that hope, that love, that plan, that, that fact that God is in complete control, that, that we have an eternity. But then the bitterness comes from the fact that some are still going to turn away. And we may think, how in the world could people live through a time like this and still turn away? Well, not to get too deep into Revelation, but a little later, there is this thousand years of peace. And it's with Jesus on earth and the devil chained up. And even with all of that true, people still turn from him. And it, it makes no sense. But how often do we act selfishly when we know that it's the wrong thing to do? How often do we choose ourselves over others, even choose ourselves over God? And so this is a reminder of that bitterness that, that even though it's so sweet and so powerful and so hopeful, there's still That feeling of loss because people, not everyone will listen. Not everyone will love. Not everyone will turn to him. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop on the negative. It doesn't stop on the sour. It doesn't stop on him eating the book. He is then called to preach, to teach, to love everyone. And this is old John. This isn't young John who walked around with Jesus and was really close and took care of his mom. This is around 95 AD or so. Jesus was in the 30s. So this is a long time for John. And in that time, he's seen all of his brothers in the faith die. He is the last one alive and he's exiled to an island. And yet he still preaches the word. As long as there is life, there is hope. And as long as we are alive, we have this chance to show eternity to others, to help others find the way. And here's the thing. It's not just John that's called to do that. It is each and every one of us. Regardless of age, regardless of economics, regardless of whatever, we are called to love everyone, to show everyone who he is, to show everyone the way to heaven, to show everyone that heaven means something. And so I have one more quote, because there's a lot of questions about love. How can I love somebody that's different than me? Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you do. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. But Jesus, how can I love this person who votes differently than me, who believes differently than me, who is different than me on every way? How can I love a Purdue fan? How can I love a Michigan fan? How can I love Jim Harbaugh to put a face on it? The answer is because Jesus did. And because guess what? We're not perfect either. 
And he still loves us. You see, after this in the scripture, in Revelation, it gets really fun. And there are two witnesses, and it talks about the beast or the Antichrist, and it talks about all this stuff that maybe I'll get to talk about later. But now, it is about our call. Our call to love everyone. Our call on what we do with gratefulness. And how we love everyone. How we have to truly love everyone. And to act like you love them is not being fake. Because you're building that love. And if you're like, but they're so different. And they're so annoying. And they're so wrong. And I get it. I understand that this is a world where people have no idea how roundabouts work. And they sit at yield signs as if they're a stop sign for two and a half hours. And I've been on the interstate 75 and 74 and I get that it can be hard to have love there. But here's the thing, and this is one of my favorite things to point out. In his last days on earth, Jesus had all the disciples together, all 12 of them. And I remind you that not one but two betrayed him. Now, Judas is the full betrayal, but Peter, by denying him, by lying, that was a betrayal too. And even knowing all of that, knowing that they'd all run, knowing that Judas would lie about him and and just turn him over to die, knowing that, he washed each of their feet even Judas's. This is a God who dealt with persecution and hatred every day for doing nothing but showing love and telling truth. The Pharisees literally walked around trying to trap him, trying to trick him, trying to make him mess up. And he still loved them. He still took time to talk to Nicodemus. He still called Paul. He still loved them completely. Andy talked about the past, the present, the future. And God is in all of that. And he is in eternity, obviously. But he has to be in us. He has to be in us, in the way we treat others, in the way we love. And you may ask, how can I love so-and-so? Because Jesus did. Because Jesus loves me. Because Jesus loves you. Because Jesus loves everyone. Because when he died on the cross, it wasn't for Christians. It was for everyone. To have the opportunity to choose him. Too often. Too often we focus on just the commands. On just the do's and the don'ts. On just the appearance. On just what we want. On just what we think should happen. Too often. We focus too much on being right. On winning. On having our way. It's not about our way. He is the way. And he is the truth. And he is the life. And that's what we must follow. That's what we must do. Over the week, on Wednesday, I went to Indianapolis like usual, see Beatrice. And we spent the day together. We went to the museum and did all this stuff. And had fun. I did not want to go back Thursday. Because I don't know if you've ever driven to Indianapolis, but it's not a lot of fun, especially on a holiday. But I did because I had to. But my plan was to just go back for dinner, to just be there in that moment. Well, 
Amber, my sister, texted me in the morning because I still, even if I'm going to sleep in, I have to get up and take care of Stevie. And so, which is also the answer if you're thinking, why didn't you just spend the night? Because of Stevie, my dog, in case you don't know that. She's diabetic. Uh, and so she texted and she asked first, you know, when are you coming? Now, in my head, I know usually when she asks me when I'm coming, it means she wants me to come earlier. And her next was like the crying face emoji and like, hey, you know, you can come earlier. Which meant Beatrice was being a little too helpful with cooking. Now, I don't know if you've ever cooked with a four-year-old before, but you don't necessarily have the same view on how things work. And so I got there early and I, I walked in and Beatrice met me at the door and she was happy and sweet like she always is. And she ran to show me they'd done as a family a thanks, thankful tree, a grateful tree. And she showed me her leaf. And it said, uncle, for taking me fun places. Now I have a point. When I am with her, I am with her. We do lots of stuff that helps her to feel loved that I don't necessarily want to do. For example, when we go to the mall, she makes me play hide and seek in Macy's. <laughs> I am not naturally outgoing like that, and I am terrified the whole time. More than that, she is the mom and makes me be the girl baby, and she changes my diaper. This is all in public, and this, I am not good at that. But when I'm with her, it's about her, which brings me to the point. We are called to love everyone, and we know that. But so often, we define that love by how we want them to feel loved. That's not what Jesus did. Imagine if Jesus treated us like that. If he just put us all in a bag and treated us all the same. And every prayer request, he's like, yeah, yeah, I love you. And he just gave us all everything equally. He didn't do that. If you look through the Gospels, he would talk to people differently. Not changing the truth, but giving them what they needed. Helping them to feel loved in the way that they needed to feel it. With some, he healed them by not doing anything other than saying faith. With some, he held out his hand. With some, he prayed. And it was all because he knew what we needed. We have to love people in the way that they need to be loved. We have to be like Jesus. I would challenge you to go home and turn on the news, but nobody wants to do that. But I would guarantee you within five minutes there's some negative story, some horrible story, some tragedy, some awful thing that's evil or something bad happening in the world. I guarantee it, regardless of which news you choose. And so it's easy to fall into that of, well, they need this and they need that and this is blah, blah, blah. What they need, what we all need, is to feel the pure love of Jesus. To know that there is a hope for an eternity. To know that we live in hope, in love, in peace, in mercy. We are called to be like Jesus. He does not say, go try and love everybody. He says, go do it. So let's go do it.
That's all I got.